Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, November 6th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great, Tony. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Before we begin, let me remind students and instructors that if you would like us to address a particular question or issue on a podcast, you can contact us via email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. As we record this episode at about 10 a.m. on Friday morning, it appears very likely, but not certain, that Joe Biden has been elected president. Situation is a bit murkier with respect to the makeup of the 117th Congress that will be sworn in on January 3rd, 2021. It appears that the Democrats will retain a majority in the House of Representatives, although the majority might be smaller. Control of the Senate seems likely to be determined by the results of two runoff elections held on January 5th for Georgia's Senate seats. The likeliest outcome appears to be that the Republicans will retain control of the Senate while the Democrats have control of the White House and House of Representatives. We can postpone, I think for a later podcast, considering the likely effect on economic policy of the, that divided government, if it turns out that that's how things, how, how things turn out. Glenn, but leaving that aside, thinking about what might happen between now and January, there's been an indication that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi might be open to attempting to pass an additional fiscal stimulus package. Assuming at some point later this year or even early next year, Congress agrees to a new fiscal stimulus plan, what form should it take? And related point, should we be concerned about the implications that additional spending or tax cuts would have for the federal government's budget deficit and for the federal government's debt? Well, those are huge and great questions, Tony. I, I think that you know, speaking from, from economics and what we talk about uh, in the book, in a uh, recession like this that has both supply and demand uh, components to it, there's still a need to focus on uh, cushioning blows. And the blows I'm thinking of would be uh, big declines in state revenues, uh, declines in income from increased high levels of unemployment, uh, and still struggling small and mid-sized businesses. Those would be the economic areas. They're also the areas in which the speaker and the majority leader have, have continued to talk. The numbers that are bandied about are more in the trillion dollar range, which sounds like about right for addressing the, the scale of the problem. I know those are large numbers uh, to us and to, to students and to the nation, but the key goal is to win a war. And the war is both to win a war against the virus itself and to win a war against its economic damage. So to your question about debt, yes, of course, that's going to increase debt burdens, but what's the counterfactual? If we do nothing and the economy slips further, we may be worse off. So I think this is one we have to get out in front of 
and then have a longer fiscal discussion. And I think it's encouraging if our political process catches up to that. Yes, I agree with that. I think that the upsurge in COVID cases that we are seeing in many different places probably makes additional fiscal stimulus spending and ways of supporting small businesses and workers even more important because we've seen that there's actually been a step back in some cities um, from the full reopening of restaurants and bars and other small businesses. And as we've talked about in previous podcasts, many of those small businesses have very thin financial cushions. And since we were already a number of months into this pandemic, many of them have, have run through the borrowing that they could do. They've run through the aid they received in the first stimulus package. And some are, are, are literally using credit card borrowing and so on to keep going. And the same is true of their employees who benefited from the payments that they received, the uh, additional unemployment insurance payments and the, the direct payments. Um, but as time has gone on and we saw a pretty favorable unemployment report come out this morning, but still there's, there's a lot of people who are out of work and who have drawn down most of their resources. It, it is, as you mentioned, um, and as we've talked about before, different than other recessions and also different because we kind of have a fix on when things might start to get back to normal. I think, the, of course, there's uncertainty with respect to how promptly vaccines will be available and how effective they'll be and so on. But it looks like sometime around the middle of next year, we may have had, we may have effective vaccines that are widely distributed enough that maybe we can, we can start to get back to normal. I, I know a lot of people are concerned about the national debt, and maybe this is, this is a little bit off the point, but I was thinking about it this morning in talking about, thinking about how we may end up with a divided federal government, but lurking in the background, but not discussed that much recently and not, wasn't really a focus of the campaign, are the budgetary problems of Social Security and Medicare, which to some extent have been made worse because, of course, the, the payroll tax funds Social Security and Medicare. And when you have as many people off payrolls as we've had over the past few months, then those revenues are going to decline. Joe Biden had indicated that he'd like to raise the payroll tax on higher income workers while raising the amount received by raising the amount of Social Security payments received by low income recipients. Do you have any thoughts about that, about um, what we might think about as potential ways of dealing with a shortfall in Social Security and a shortfall in Medicare that are going to have to be faced? in the fairly near future as both of those programs begin to exhaust their reserves? Well, it's another great question, Tony. I think over the next decade, first Medicare, then Social Security, will get to points where under budget rules, they have cash flow problems. Economists, of course, we would look at the present values and say the programs are in trouble now and have been, but even by budget rules, they'll have to be addressed. Uh, Vice President Biden did propose a very large increase in the payroll tax, basically imposing the entire payroll tax 
on uh, certain upper incomes, while that would be a very large tax increase, it really doesn't get at all of the problems or even very many of the problems in Social Security or Medicare. If the goal is to fix those systems, we really have to take a hard look at everything from retirement ages to the formulas we use for indexation to the way we fund old age healthcare. And these are key topics for students because obviously students are in a position where they're gonna be paying payroll taxes for a very long time and are a long time away from retirement or, or being old. So I think it's a very big issue. Uh, I think the jury's out. It's hard politically to see the payroll tax Vice President Biden has uh, served up as happening, but we'll have to see what the new Congress looks like. Glenn, one area of economic policy we haven't discussed much in previous podcasts is the federal government's policy with respect to international trade. As we talk about in the book, President Trump has used tariffs as a, a means of attempting to, to meet certain economic goals. And as we discuss, one result was in effect a trade war with China where we raised tariffs on certain imported goods from China and China retaliated by raising tariffs on certain US exports. And assuming that, that again, that uh, Vice President Biden does win the election, it's probable that he might take a different course, although we don't know that with certainty. Looking ahead, though, if Congress and the, the new administration, if there is one uh, in January, can agree on a trade policy, what form should it take? Well, it's interesting because should has both a textbook answer and an answer informed by the political economy of the world we live in. So when economists say they like free trade, they're 100% right. Everything one's Econ 101 professor said is true. Uh, of course, the Econ 101 professor also probably talked about gainers compensating losers, which we have not done very much of in the United States and in much of the industrial world. So to me, one of the issues, whether it's a President Biden or a President Trump, is that the trade populism of President Trump seems to have carried the day, whichever one of those gentlemen uh, occupies, uh, occupies the White House. A key issue is China. And you mentioned the tariffs. And the economic evidence that we do have uh, suggests that Americans bore the burden of the tariffs, much as economic theory would suggest, and the evidence uh, confirms that. I think President Trump did call out China on some areas that are truly troubling in international trade, improper subsidies, uh, intellectual property theft, and so on. But I think what is necessary is probably from an economic perspective, a new kind of multilateral emphasis. And I say new, meaning not going back to restructure trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because frankly, I don't see the political economy support for that on either side of the aisle. I rather mean, and I, here's where I think a new administration might be different, although we don't know, is a resuscitation of our work with allies, the European Union, Canada, Japan, Australia, in terms of dealing with China. I think there's also an interesting political economy element of trade that we talk about a little in the book and I think will be very important in the political discussion, which is economics and economists traditionally have taken what I would call an outside in view. They think of um, 
uh, trade agreements and free trade is the good thing. And in the economy, we'll just adjust. And of course, just like your Econ 101 teacher told you, that's exactly the right answer. The problem is that adjustment's painful and often not assisted. And I think we may need to take an alternative inside out view of political economy that says first inside, what adjustments do we think we need to make that permit uh, globalization to be the order of the day, or for that matter, in a different conversation, technological change. You know, it's very hard to have global integration if you have local disintegration. So I think economics and political economy are coming together. But what do you think? I think those are all very good points. Um, certainly, as we we think of the political economy of the last four or five years, a, a point you've made a number of times in the textbook and outside the textbook is that as China was integrated into the world trading system and imports into the United States of Chinese products increased, you can view that as a good thing because um, a lot of those products were less expensive so that someone who was going to Walmart to buy clothing or other products that were made in China was, was paying less. And if your income is already low, paying less is a great benefit. But on the other hand, it also meant that people were losing their jobs, particularly in areas of the Midwest where manufacturing jobs were, were badly hurt. And as you pointed out, even though in principle, and as we point out in the book, the gains to the people who benefit from free trade are greater than the losses to the people who lose, those losses are real. And the individuals who suffer them and the business owners who suffer them are rightfully um, inclined to take a dim view of trade agreements that they see as not benefiting them, as uh, hurting them. And so I think you're right that going forward, a return to the, the, the sort of World Trade Organization, let's just, have, let's just have rounds of negotiations that continually make trade freer, is difficult to see coming back unless we do a better job of cushioning the impact on those people who end up being uh, disadvantaged by trade. It might be worth mentioning that one of the hopes I think that the Trump administration had with some of their tariffs was that it might uh, at least arrest the decline in manufacturing employment in the US, which doesn't seem to have happened. And part of the reason is that tariffs can be complicated. For instance, if you raise tariffs on imports of steel, um, you can hope to preserve jobs in the steel industry, but then steel is an input to car manufacturing, appliance manufacturing. And so a company like Whirlpool making washing machines was, was helped by tariffs on the importation of foreign washing machines, but then was hurt because their cost of producing those washing machines was, was increased. And in the background, I think sometimes we think, well, you know, it's just all trade that's caused manufacturing to dwindle in the United States. We, if, we hadn't, if we hadn't experienced the opening up of uh, the economy to Chinese imports and so on, uh, manufacturing would be as robust as it was back in the 50s and 60s. But we know that there are long run trends having to do with automation, having to do with the fact that as the world economy evolves, other countries 
manage to um, gain the skills that allow them to engage in manufacturing. So we've seen, as you notice we talk about in the book, a much bigger decline in manufacturing employment in the United States as a fraction of total employment than we have in manufacturing production. And that seems like a paradox. How is it that fewer people are employed in manufacturing, even though manufacturing production hasn't fallen nearly as much? And the answer, of course, is that technological change has happened, that productivity has increased. So car companies and washing machine companies and steel companies can make the same amount of output um, using fewer workers. And those kinds of trends are ones that you can't really hope to, to stop with tariffs. They're going to take place almost irrespective of what the tariff policy of the United States or the international trade policy of the United States might be. Okay, Glenn, I, I thought maybe we could step back and, and take a look at the big picture with respect to the ability of presidents of either party to have a significant effect on the economy. We know that every president will take credit for increases in employment, growth in real GDP that take place while he's in office. And every president gets blamed by his opponents if the economy moves into recession or employment, real GDP grow only slowly during his term of office. The question is though, how much responsibility should we assign presidents for the state of the economy? Maybe it might be worth separating the, the short run effect a president can have on the economy from the long run effect. It's a super important question, Tony, because I think in many people's eyes, the president, because the presidency is such an important role in the nation and the world, surely must be the uh, helms person for the economy. And, that's a little bit true, but uh, a lot overstated. So uh, the sense in which it's a little bit true is presidents do set an economic tone. So for example, when President Trump was elected, he did suggest a different economic tone about, let's say, taxation or regulation. We've already talked about trade than a previous uh, president. And that had effects on the stock market, on the economy. So in that sense, presidents have an effect. Presidents also have an effect because in our political process, polarization in the legislative process has led to a lot more being done by regulation, which is uh, often under the control of the administration's regulatory agencies. So in that sense, a president's points of view can have significant effects. But going forward, if you think about what determines the long-term trajectory or growth of the economy uh, on the supply side, it would be the growth in labor force and hours worked uh, and in productivity. And it is possible for a given president to have some influence, but I think of those as mainly being stories about demography, uh, about the pace of technological change, and while public policy can play a role, it tends to be in longer term things like the structure of programs that affect work or support for research and development or other things that might affect technological change. So yes, of course, it's important who the president is, no denying that for the economy as well as for anything else. But I think it's easy to overstate the president's importance and actually lose track uh, more importantly, if some of those longer-term deter determinants of work uh, and of productivity. What do you think? Yes, I think you're right that we have a tendency 
when we're looking at the economy to sort of say, well, you know, who is responsible for this? And some of the time you can, you can point to actions that the present Congress have taken for better or for ill that may have nudged the economy one way or the other. Uh, but as you say, in the long run, uh, what we're interested in, what most people are interested in is, am I going to be better off over time? And that's really a question of what's happening to their incomes over time. And of course, when economists think about income, they're not thinking just about, you know, how many dollars do I get paid, but what can I buy with that money? In other words, over time, really, the average income in a country is determined by how much the average person can buy of goods and services. And we know that the average person can't buy more goods and services over the long run unless the economy is producing more goods and services per person over the long run. And as you point out, what tends to drive that, particularly if we're looking at average incomes or real GDP per capita, it's really productivity growth, right? It's the ability of the economy to produce more output for with a given amount of inputs. As we talk about in the book, there have been big swings in productivity in the United States, big swings in the growth of productivity that roughly from after World War II and late 40s through the mid 70s, productivity grew pretty rapidly and as a result, average incomes were growing pretty rapidly. But then we had a big slowdown of about 20 years or so from the mid 70s to the mid 90s. Productivity growth didn't stop, but it got much slower. So naturally, if we're, if we're not increasing the rate at which we're producing stuff at, a, at, a, at an increasing rate, then incomes are not gonna grow as rapidly. Then we had a, a burst of productivity increase from the mid 90s roughly to the, the mid 2000s. And then it's been slower for the last 15 years or so. And as you know, as we talk about in the book, economists have a lot of stories, a lot of plausible hypotheses about why we've had these swings, but there really isn't a consensus. And certainly, I don't think that there are economists who would say, well, you know, it was government policy uh, during this period or that period that either caused productivity to grow more or less rapidly. Um, as you point out, government policy can certainly help at the margins because we know that research and development contributes to productivity growth as companies find new ways of doing things, better ways of doing things, new products, and so on. And so the federal government can provide funds for research and development through the National Science Foundation and other agencies or it can encourage private research and development by giving favorable tax treatment to firms spending on research and development. And then also giving firms incentive to make new investment in, in capital equipment also helps to increase productivity growth because we know that new machinery and equipment, robots and computers and software and so on, typically embody the most recent technology and the larger fraction of the of the firms in the economy that are using the best, the most recent technology, the more rapidly productivity growth uh, will increase. But I think most economists would say those are good things to do, but they are not really decisive in determining uh, what's gonna happen with productivity. Uh, they're worth doing because 
as we point out in the book, that even small increases in productivity growth, even a couple of tenths of a percentage point, when compounded over a long period of time, right? So that uh, a college student who is 20, uh, 20 years out is 40 years old, uh, more rapid increase in productivity growth means that that college student at the age of 40 will most likely have a higher income and will be living in a country where average incomes are, are higher than if productivity growth is, is slower. But again, productivity is this kind of mysterious thing and uh, we don't really know exactly what determines why it grows more rapidly in some periods than another. So we can't really say to Congress and the president, look, you know, just pass policies X, Y, and Z, and we can get the level of productivity growth that we're looking for. I think that's true, Tony, but there are some long-term things economics does suggest. So I'm thinking of the work of economic historians like uh, Joel Mokir or Deirdre McCloskey, that if you want to have a, a culture of continuous innovation and technological change, there are certain institutions, economic institutions that do matter. So that suggests, you know, maybe Congress or the American people ought to think more about those and not just at the edges about tax policy or this or that regulation. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I was, I was thinking the other day uh, that if we are uh, heading into an era in which as, as, some people would like to see. We have a, an expansion of social programs and probably an increase in taxes necessary to fund those social programs so that we end up looking more like, say, Sweden, which uh, has higher taxes than, than uh, in the United States, but also has more social programs provided. There are ways of, even if we were to take that path of doing it, and, and the, the Swedish way has been largely to cut back on regulation and to allow for um, businesses to operate um, pretty freely. Whereas if you take a, a country like Italy, which also has much higher taxes and much more social services, they also have a lot more government regulation. And if you look uh, at how those two particular economies have done over the last 20 years, Sweden has had pretty good growth. So that over the last 20 years or so, I was looking at the other day, per capita income in Sweden has grown about 30%. So the typical person in Sweden is uh, significantly better off than he or she was uh, uh, 20 years ago. Whereas in Italy, um, per capita income has stagnated. So the typical person in Italy is no better off than he or she was 20 years ago. So I think you're right that there are these broader issues that now, in the end, when you have a market system and you're relying on the market system to produce the goods and services that contribute to people's well-being, it's important that the, that the institutions end up supporting the ability of firms and workers to actually operate in a way that uh, allows them to increase output over time. Glenn, I'm sure these are issues that we'll want to revisit down the line when we see what new policies the Biden administration proposes, assuming again that there will be a Biden administration, which is still a little bit up in the air as we record this. A reminder to listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes, where you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com for new content. 
You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And another reminder, if you have an issue or concern you'd like us to discuss in a future podcast, please send us an email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with you again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.